I pause today to, to look around this room and just say a thank you. I am grateful uh, that I am able to celebrate Christmas morning here with my church family. I have uh, served as a pastor here. This is my 18th Christmas, and uh, yet Christmas morning is as uh, Matthew points out, rarely falls on a Sunday. It's once every seven years is our average. And uh, so we will get to do that again here in a few years. But it is good to, to gather with you, our church family. Yesterday, I posted something on Facebook. You, uh, if you saw it, my sister had sent an ornament. Uh, and our mother passed away this year, so mom and dad are both gone. And, and one of my older brothers had passed away a few years ago. We've been working together to deal with our parents' estate. And uh, I was just reminded of how uh, precious family is. And she sent this ornament that said, Merry Christmas. And it said, the greatest gift our parents left us was each other. And I thought that's very precious and it's very meaningful and very true. But as I was thinking about gathering with my church family this morning, I thought about the greatest gift that our Heavenly Father's left us. And of course, the, the greatest gift that He's given us is, is our, our eternal life that has been sealed through His Holy Spirit, His very presence with us. But I believe that the greatest earthly gift that the Lord has given us is each other. And I truly, I truly mean that. I believe that's why Jesus said that if you're going to show the world that you're one of my disciples, love each other. That's how the world's going to know that you're mine, when you love one another. And so I, I mean it with all sincerity. As much as I love Christmas, the festivities, and, you know, I'm like anybody else. I, I miss the wonder of waking up when I was six, seven years old and, and sneaking into the living room to look and see if Santa had shown up yet and, and, and delivered gifts under the tree. And there's a lot of the wonder of, of the, my childhood Christmas that I, that I miss, and I'm sure you do too. There's a lot of family memories that surround the holidays, especially Christmas, that I miss. Those change as our parents, our grandparents pass, or our parents pass, or even as we lose a child. Uh, those, those memories change, and so we struggle. And yet, the greatest wonder of Christmas is the central core truth of Christmas itself, that God cared so much about us. He loved us so much that instead of discarding us because of our sin and our rebellion against him, he stepped out of heaven in the form of a baby and entered into the womb of a virgin to be born on this earth, to walk among us, to go to a cross, to die, to be resurrected so that you and I could have everlasting life. That's the true wonder of Christmas. There's, you can talk about Christmas miracles, but the true Christmas miracle is that miracle of Jesus and so from here on through the rest of the sermon, I'm going to keep things pretty simple. We're going to read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to walk through four things that I want you to see there. It begins like this, and I'm reading from the, the Christian Standard Bible today. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governor or governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, 
Shepherds were staying out in the fields, keeping watch at night over their flocks. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message that they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told." When you begin this text, it, it's, it's, we know the backstory, right? We already know that, that Mary by, was surprised one night with the angel Gabriel who showed up to her house and said, hey, I'm going to give you a baby. And she says, wait a minute, I can't have a baby. I, I've never been with a man and I'm not married yet. And, and you have all of that story, the backstory where then uh, the angel appears to Joseph and uh, Joseph was, was who was engaged to Mary, was getting ready to divorce her, to set her aside. Angel appears to him and says, hey, don't, don't divorce her. This, Mary hadn't cheated on you. This is God's son. The Holy Spirit has come upon Mary, and, and you're gonna, uh, y'all are going to bear the Christ child. You're going to bear the Savior. You're going to call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And so now the time has come where at the end of her pregnancy, she's coming near to the, the, the time when she's due, the, the nine months. And we had four daughters, and so I remember those times with my wife. I remember the first three months uh, of Susan's pregnancy. In fact, she really didn't need to take a pregnancy test to find out she was pregnant because you knew when she started throwing up. She had morning sickness, she had afternoon sickness, she had evening sickness. He was sick all day long for about three, three and a half months. But then we entered into that, that middle trimester, that you know, fourth, fifth, and sixth month where Susan just enjoyed the, 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 the pregnancy. She had that glow that you, that you hear about. And then came the last couple months and she was ready to get this thing out of her. It was like an alien was living in her, and she was ready to be done. And, and I, I remember how uncomfortable she was as we came into that, that last month of, of, of her carrying each of our four daughters, and how, how difficult it was to get around, and, and how difficult it was to sleep, and all of the discomfort that she had. And, and that's where we come to this place of the story. Mary has reached that point of being uncomfortable, and Joseph comes to his wife and says, hey, dear, we need to take a donkey ride for a couple days. <laughs> Can you imagine what that, that was like, what that discussion was like? I, I'm sorry, but uh, we have to obey the governor in my hometown's Bethlehem. So we've got to head back to Bethlehem. And, you know, they're, they're, they didn't have a, a, a car to ride in. They couldn't take a, a quick trip on a helicopter. Uh, so Mary uh, got on the back of a donkey and they began that journey from Nazareth of Galilee down to Bethlehem. Now, what I love about this, I want to I pause and I want you to see this. This is the first main point, is how God orchestrated 
the plan so that his prophecy would be fulfilled. God had a plan all along. It, it, doesn't, it didn't surprise God that, that the governor came up with this, uh, this, this uh, census that everybody was going to have to go home. Uh, uh, that was God's plan. In fact, what's cool about this is God had already given a prophecy hundreds of years before that the Christ child, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5, he tells us that Bethlehem is going to be the birthplace of the Savior. It's going to be the birthplace of the Messiah. It even, it, it, it's one of those strange things because it wasn't like he picked a big town. It wasn't like he was going to Jerusalem, you know, the capital, the big city. He's going to the small town, Bethlehem. Oh, little you, Bethlehem, you're going to be the one. The city of David, God had purpose. In, in how he planned this. God had purpose in how he chose Joseph, who would have to go back to Bethlehem. God had purpose in how he had control. Hear this. God had control over the Roman governor. God had control over Caesar Augustus. God in his sovereignty is the one who planned for, for Caesar Augustus to call for the census, for the governor of, of Syria, Quirinius, to say they had to go back to their hometown. God controlled all of that. And what's beautiful about the birth of the Christ child is that God was simply fulfilling his plan. He was working it out. What I want you to hear from that is that we serve a, a God. We serve a Lord who is in control. He hasn't lost control. When you look around and it looks like the government's out of control now and it looks like everything's falling apart and it looks like the economy is going apart, God is still God. He's still sovereign. He still sits on his throne. It wasn't an accident that Mary made that trip. It was God's plan. It was God's purpose. And you would wonder, why would he take her through such difficult times for, for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem? Why couldn't he have chosen for Mary to live in Bethlehem? I don't know. It, but what I do know is that more often than, God, than not, God uses those kinds of challenging and difficult times to prepare us for what he wants to use us for. Would you, do you hear that again? I, I, I don't know that I made it very clear. God, more often than not, uses difficulty to purify our faith, to mold us, to shape us, to, to prepare us so that we'll be the person that he wants us to be. We'll have the character that he wants us to have so that we can be more usable for God himself. I think about when I was a young man going to Howard Payne University and I knew that God had called me to the ministry and I had grand plans for I was going to, you know, maybe he was going to call me to teach or he's going to call me to be a missionary and he was going to call me to do some of these great things. And I, I remember pretty clearly I think I was a sophomore. Susan and I were married. We were living in our little efficiency apartment there on the Howard Payne campus. And I remember the Lord uh, impressed on my heart that he was calling me to be a pastor. And I remember thinking, I don't want to be a pastor because I don't like people. <laughs> a pastor has to love folks. I, I want to be a teacher. I love the word of God. I love Greek. I, I want to get into the Greek. And I want to tell people what the Greek says and tell them how they're supposed to live their life. I don't want to have to get get out there at the hospitals and be a pastor. And so my prayer was, Lord, if you're calling me to be a pastor, give me a pastor's heart. And over the next few years of my life, God allowed some very challenging and painful circumstances to come into my life that changed me. 
that taught me what it was like to live in hospitals <laughs> and, and, and to deal with suffering and pain and challenges. So I believe that, that God in his perfect plan even used the donkey and, and used the trip and, and used the, the cold night outside in a, in a cave instead of being in a nice, clean place to, to birth a baby. That you, 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 it's hard for us when we see our westernized pictures of the manger, of, of you know, Mary and Joseph, they're smiling over the, what looks like a, a, a rough cradle, you know, smiling over the, the baby Jesus, to, to think through what that night must have really been like. They didn't have doctors and nurses. They didn't have IVs and epidurals. They were in a, in a stinking cattle stall or sheep stall. When, when Jesus was born, he, he didn't receive a, a beautiful pink receiving blanket. He was wrapped in what cloths they had and, and literally laid in a feeding trough. That's what the word manger means. God orchestrated his plan with purpose. God fulfilled his prophecy perfectly. See, Christmas morning, that first Christmas was orchestrated and planned by the Father before he created the world. Scripture says that, that God, knowing that man was going to sin and going to fail him, he had a plan to begin with to send his son. And God orchestrated that from the beginning. Second, I want you to look at the specifics of Jesus's birth there. It says, of course, Joseph goes up to Nazareth in Galilee. When you come to verse five, uh, he was going to be registered along with Mary who was engaged to him. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him tight in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room for them. Two things about the, the birth in particular that I want to point out from here. First of all is the virgin birth. Jesus was born of, of Mary the virgin. And we believe what scripture teaches that Mary had never been with a man. And that's why she was more surprised than anybody else that she could be pregnant. She knew, you know, that old song and we've talked about this and we've joked about it. Mary, did you know Mark Lowry made it famous? Uh, uh, Mary, did you know? And, and I want to shout, yes, she knew. If anybody knew that a miracle was taking place, Mary knew. She knew more than anybody else because she's the one that got pregnant and had never been with a man. So Mary knew. Now, did Mary know the full extent of what she was about to face? Nope, none of us do. That's part of what makes that song wondrous and beautiful. As she was holding this newborn son in her hands. And she looked into that sweet face. I, I don't think there's any way that she knew what was gonna happen over the next 30 years or so, that she could imagine the miracles, that she could imagine the lame that were gonna walk, the blind that were gonna see at his touch or at his breath or at his command, that she could imagine that, that, that a, a dead man would be raised to life four days after he, he was put in the grave, or that she could imagine or even want to that that baby one day was going to take the beatings of the cat of nine tails and be nailed to a cross and die. The sweet, young Mary, who, who simply, her confession of the Lord, when, when, when she was told what was about to happen, and she began to grasp it, said, let it be done unto me according to your plan. Whatever your will is, 
Lord, I want to do it. That young lady sat there that night after hours of labor and giving birth in a, in a sheep stall probably with the animals and the stench around as a virgin who had delivered a child for the very first time without ever being with a man. Because of that, Jesus was born without carrying the stain of sin that's passed down from Adam from generation to generation. Jesus' one and only father was God. Through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, his mother was a virgin, and he was born so that he, that the reason that he came in that way was so that he might be the perfect sacrifice for you and I. So that when he went to the cross and died, he didn't have to die for his own sin because he didn't have any. He died for your sin and my sin. He was the perfect sacrifice for us because he was born of a virgin. The second thing that I want you to see that took place at that birth, at the birth place right there that is so crucial is where he was born and why. Why was he born in in a manger scene. Why, why was he born in a cave that had been hewn out of the rocks that was used to shelter animals uh, during the night? A stall with hay and manure and urine and placed in a feeding trough because they didn't have a crib, wrapped in whatever linens they could grab to keep him warm. Why? Why would God send his son to a manger instead of sending his son to a palace. For goodness sake, he was the king of kings. He was the Lord of lords. He was the agent of creation. Jesus had known nothing but glory. Jesus had known nothing but power and beauty. And he stepped out of heaven to, to be born. He, he at least could have, could have come to a palace. He at least could have come into a comfortable home, a nice warm bed or nice warm room but instead God sent his son to be born in a stable and to be placed in a feeding trough why I think there's no other explanation than this that God sent his son for all of us he came to be born in the lowliest place so that he couldn't be claimed by kings he couldn't be claimed by rulers he wasn't born in the temple so that the priests could celebrate he came to all of us. He came to every, everyday people. The announcement, the birth announcement didn't even come to the temple. The birth announcement didn't come through the high priest. The birth announcement came to shepherds who were going to go find him in a manger. What a, what a beautiful picture God gives us, so don't miss that. Jesus came in the way he came, designed by God, because he wants us to know just how much he loves us and how much he cares for us, and where he wants to meet us. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel, born to walk among men, born to save all of us, not just those of position or power. Because the, I think there's one other reason that I give you here that I want you to notice. And Jesus came to be a servant, not a king. That's the, that's, First big picture. The second big picture, why did he come the way he did? Partly, I believe, it's because the world, those who have authority, those who had power, those who had property, those who had possessions, did not have room for Jesus. 
And that's still true today. Those who rely on their power, those who rely on their possessions, those who rely on the things of this world, rarely find room in their life for Jesus. And I'm afraid that the wealthier our nation has become, the less we become dependent upon Jesus. The more comfortable we've become with our stuff, the less we need, we think, the less we need a Savior. I'll never forget visiting a, a home of a family in May, Texas, when the husband who was a born-again believer had recommitted his life and was beginning to walk with the Lord again after being away from the Lord for years. And he'd, he'd married outside of the faith and he loved, 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 loved his wife and, and desperately desired for her to come to faith in Christ. But they were, they were wealthy. They were people of means. They, they had property. Uh, they had everything that they could, could want to have. They had a good marriage. They were comfortable. And, and he'd asked me to come to their, their home and visit with her with the intent of just sharing the gospel with her. And he'd been trying to share the gospel with her. And so I remember going to their home and, and we were just visiting and we're talking about life. And she, she's the one who just pushed it. She got down to, to uh, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, and says, uh, I, I, I know that why, why you're here is because uh, he thinks that I need to be saved. And she said, but my question is, what do I need to be saved from? I'm a good person. I have a good family. I have a nice home. What do I need to be saved from? All of her wealth and all of her comfort and all of the goodness about her life, she, and she was a good person, made her feel like she did not need a Savior. The truth is, we all need a Savior. It's oftentimes our comfort and our materialism, the goods of this world, that cause us to push Jesus out. And so those who were wealthy, the innkeeper, the property owner, didn't have room for Mary and Joseph. They didn't have room for a savior to be born there. The manger was empty. And then you see after the birth, you see this heaven celebration. So you see God's orchestrated plan, you see Jesus's birth, and then you see heaven celebration. What a great picture here. Hey, can you imagine being those shepherds up on the hillside? We don't know how many shepherds were there. They're up there in the dark of night. Uh, they're tending their sheep, and uh, you know, apparently stars are filling the sky, and they're just kicked back, enjoying the night, when all of a sudden, kaboom, this light appears out of heaven. Uh, the, the scripture says, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and, and it, it doesn't specifically use the word light, but it says, the glory of the Lord shone around him. I, I always love this picture, because every time that an angel shows up somewhere, almost every time, the first words out of their mouth is, don't be afraid you got to be kidding me. I'm going to be afraid. The, the angels in Scripture are not pictures. We, we picture them as these little cherubim or pharaohim flying around, uh, little, little baby angels with wings. Th those who are described as the, to the true angels of the Lord in Scripture are, are not described like that. They're powerful, huge beings who appear with a light shining all around them. And that's why every time they show up, they have to start with, don't be afraid. I'm here with good news. But the angels, it must have scared the wits out of them. And so as the, the angel begins to speak to them, in fact, it says they were terrified. Okay, there in verse 9. The angel said, don't be afraid. Don't be terrified. For look, I bring you good news of great joy 
Heaven celebrated the moment that Jesus was born. Heaven celebrated the birth of Christ in a manger. All of the angels could not withhold their, their celebration. In fact, uh, the, the, the angel of the Lord appears, and then after he gives the initial announcement, the scripture says that a multitude of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth, the people he favors. You have this in incredible angelic chorus appear on a hillside celebrating the birth of Christ. I believe that every single one of us ought to celebrate Christ along with the angels. If the angels knew how important this day was, we ought to get it. If the angels appeared out of the middle of nowhere to celebrate Jesus, we ought to get it. Now, once again, I, I get a kick out of the fact that the father didn't send the angels to the temple. He sent them to the shepherds on the hillside. And I believe the same message is found in that that we find in the Jesus' birth in a manger. Jesus came for us, for all of us not just the select few and not just the religious. He came for everyone who was willing to receive him, everyone who was willing to listen. Jesus, God's one and only son, is celebrated by the angels in, in, in the midst of a hillside in a way that, that we can only imagine today. I'd love, and I will love when I get to heaven at some point to look up those shepherds and ask what that night was like when they appear. What a glorious scene that must have been and yet, I don't want you to miss the message. It's so easy to get excited about the angels. Don't miss the message that the angels brought. I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Jesus came for all, not just for the Jews, not just for the religious. He came for all people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Don't miss the message. Today, we celebrate the fact that a Savior was born in a manger in Bethlehem a little over 2,000 years ago. What an incredible, glorious message. What does that mean for you and me? It means the same thing for us that it's meant for every single person since Jesus stepped on this earth. There's hope in this dark world. What I've talked about last night, where this world brings darkness, Jesus brings light. He brings hope. What's it mean? It means that when I face troubles and trials and struggles in this life, it, it, I'm not going to avoid the difficulty. I'm not going to necessarily escape the pain. But what Jesus said in, in John 16, 33, right before he went to the cross, he said, I, I want you to know this. In this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We have hope and victory that, 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 that we can look forward to because of a Savior who was born. It means that I can't get so far away from God that God can't rescue me. It means that even though I've sinned against God, even though I walked uh, away from him for years of my life, that when I turn toward him and say, Lord, forgive me, he forgives me. It means that there's nothing that you can do that can disqualify you from eternal life. If you'll simply put your faith and trust in the one whom he sent to save you, 
See, the truth is, there's not a single one of us that could measure up, that could reach God. None of us could. But when we get down on our knees and receive him, he comes to us. I remember when I was a pastor in May and my girls were little and, uh, you know, little, 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 they, they were all, a couple of them have gotten big now, but they're, they're not giants. But I, I, little girls, I'd come home from seminary. So this was in 95, 96. I was going to seminary. Libby wasn't even here yet. And so I'd come home from school and uh, Susan, the girls might be out in the yard playing or, or they'd come running out and, and they'd, they'd run out to greet daddy. And, and, you know, the littlest one at that time would have been Kelsey. Kelsey would come running out to, to greet daddy and, and give me a hug. And, and all she could do is wrap her arms around my knees. So what I do oftentimes is just get down on my knees so I could give her a hug. She couldn't come up here to where I am to give me a hug. So I had to go down to where she was. That's what God did for us through Christ. We could not build a ladder high enough. We couldn't be holy enough to get to where he is. And so he came down to us to be born of a virgin in a manger. He came as our savior. He came to meet us where we are so that we could eventually go to where he is. He, he came down from his perch, <laughs> his lofty, elevated throne on high, to be born in a manger, to greet us where we are, so that we could receive eternal life. That's the message of Christmas. Nothing else matters when we come to those times in our life where we face the most challenging, difficult time of saying goodbye to a loved one. We've experienced that this year, and, and many of you have. And as a pastor, I don't know how many times I've stood next to a casket or next to a, a grave and was grateful that God sent a Savior. One of the, the hymns that we sang earlier, in fact, I think it was that last one, spoke of how life truly is a vapor. But what we have offered to us through Christ Jesus is eternal life, something that lasts forever. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why it's good to be here on Christmas morning to talk about it. Every year we're going to have a Christmas Eve service, but only once every seven years do we get to come in here on Christmas morning and celebrate the Savior's birth together. And then lastly, after heaven's celebration, you see the shepherd's response. And I'm going to couch this this way because I think the shepherd's response ought to be our response. Our response should, should reflect what the shepherds did. The first thing the shepherds did when they heard the good news that a Savior was born as they ran to him. They went straight to Bethlehem. They hurried off, the scripture says, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When the shepherds heard that the Savior had been sent for them, they ran to the Savior. 
I don't know why it is in our human nature when we hear the story that a Savior has come, that God sent His Son to die on a cross and be resurrected from the dead so that you and I could have everlasting life, we step back and we evaluate it. We think about it. We ask whether it's true. Sometimes we even believe it's true, but we pause because we're not sure that we want to submit our life to that Savior, to that God. And in some ways, it, it, it's absolutely illogical. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, if you believe His Word, sent His Son to give you hope and life. When the shepherds heard that story, they were so anxious and so excited, they ran to Bethlehem. They couldn't wait to go meet Jesus. That ought to be our response. When we hear about a God who loves us enough to die on a cross for us, we ought to run to him, not run from him. But often what we do as humans is we run from that God. We talked about it last night. One of the reasons we run from him is because he shines light. And that light exposes how dirty we are and how sinful we are. And so we, we, we wanna hide. We, don't, we wanna cover up our sin. We don't want God or others seeing that we're sinners. Let me tell you, God already knows that you're a sinner. He sees it. He sent his son anyway. In fact, Paul said that's the greatest picture we have of God's love. He demonstrated his love for us, for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent a Savior knowing how messed up we are. You will never commit a sin so heinous that it surprises God. And he goes, Oop, I wish I wouldn't have sent Jesus for him. God sent his son knowing that you were going to mess up. God called me to the pastor knowing that I was going to blow it sometimes. But out of his love and compassion and his desire and his plan, he's bigger than my mistakes. So he sent a Savior, and we ought to go running to that Savior. The second thing that you see the, the shepherds do is they could not shut up. They couldn't stop talking about what they'd seen. It says that everywhere they were going, then they started telling people about this, this child that they'd seen, telling them about the angels, telling them about the message, telling them about Mary and Joseph. They, they, they started telling everybody about all that they had seen, and, and people were in awe of the message that they told them. If we truly come into a, a, a relationship with Christ, we truly believe that, that God sent his son to die for us, and, and we've been transformed by his grace and by his mercy and by his spirit, we ought to be telling everybody about it. We, we ought to uh, 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 shout from the hilltops that Jesus died for you, that Jesus is your Savior. That's what Christmas is about. God sent his son for you. And the third thing that you see the shepherds do, and this is what we ought to focus on more than anything else on Christmas Day, is glorifying and praising God for the things that he had done. Verse 20 says, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they'd seen and heard, which, had, which were just as they had been told to them. Just as the angels had spoken, they saw it, and they could not stop worshiping God then. What ought to happen when we come into to, uh, contact with Christ? What ought to happen when we hear that Christmas story or we hear that Easter story? It ought to engender praise and worship in us. The holidays are a great time for families to get together. And, and, and you know, I, I've, I've told Susan, uh, I told her this this year, for some reason, right after Thanksgiving, I, 
I drink Dr. Pepper normally or Dr. Pepper Zero. But those of you that know me know that. But for some reason, about Thanksgiving, I have this incredible urge to drink Coca-Cola. And I think it has to do with a, a man in a big red suit and uh, about half dozen polar bears. <laughs> I say that jokingly because my, my, our, our culture has so ingrained the holidays and the holiday season and Christmas, uh, to me, uh, when I start seeing the lights and, and, and start uh, uh, getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving and, and playing Christmas music, I, I want to drink Coca-Cola because our, our culture has done a good job of ingraining Santa and, and the polar bears in me and, and we're, it, we're affected. Okay, we are affected and sometimes we're infected by our culture to such an extent that many believers, I believe, if I were to ask you, what is the holiday season all about or what is Christmas all about? We'd say getting together with family. A family is a good thing. God, the family is the first institution that God created. God created Adam and Eve and then he told them to get married and, and make babies, okay? Be a family. So there's nothing unholy about the family. But Christmas is not about family gatherings. Christmas is about a Savior who was born in a manger in Bethlehem to bring us a message of hope and eternal life. That's what Christmas is about. It's not about polar bears or Santa Clauses or gifts or trees or lights. I love all of those things. I, I love celebrating this season. But Christmas is about a Savior who was born in a manger in Bethlehem who came for the very purpose of saving you and I from our sins so that we could be reunited with him, his Spirit, and the Father and live eternally from this day forward with him. If, if, if you have not heard that message before, and you want to say, Pastor, how can, I, how can I do that? How can I follow Christ as my Savior? How can I, how can I enter into God's family like that? How can I, I respond? <laughs> well, first thing you do is you just run to Jesus. You, you, you come to him and you say, Lord, here I am. I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I've messed up, but I want to be yours. You, you run to Jesus and you go find him. You go find somebody that can tell you about him. Go, go find the, the pastor or a friend, somebody that can tell you about what what it means to become a child of God, to be saved and accept Christ as your Savior. Run to him. Christians, let's remember today's a great day. We're going to go uh, from here and we're going to go spend time with our kids and our grandkids. We're going to have a great day of, of family time together. I'm glad that we started here. I'm glad that we started with Jesus because that's, this is truly uh, what Christmas is all about. The celebration of Christ our Savior. So we celebrate with the heavens, we celebrate with the angels, we celebrate with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the weird thing about Christmas, we celebrate with an entire world that doesn't even know what they're celebrating, that Jesus came. That's the glory of the Christmas season. So let's make it about Jesus today. We're gonna have a hymn of response because I, I believe that every time that the gospel is preached, and you've heard the gospel today, Jesus came to save you. There's somebody in this crowd or online that's watching that may not know Jesus, that may not have surrendered your heart and your life to Christ. So we're not gonna leave here without giving you an opportunity to respond to that. If you know Christ 
and, and you're just here to, to worship and celebrate, just sing this song as a, as a hymn of worship today. But if God's tugging on your heart saying, you need to go down front, you need to talk to one of those preachers, I want to encourage you to come. What better day to put your faith and trust in the Savior who came to be born in a manger and to die on a cross than Christmas. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.